started. Welcome to Sunday School. You can find your seats. All right, we've been studying the last part of Old Testament history. And we're continuing with that today. Last week, we finished looking at Ezra and Nehemiah and the three stages of Israel's restoration from exile. This week, we begin looking at the last book of the Old Testament, the prophecy of Malachi. As we look at the book of Malachi, <clears throat> I think you're going to notice some continuity between what we looked at last time and what we're looking at today. You're going to see some similarities. Malachi was either written during the time of Nehemiah, probably in between his two governorships, or it was written shortly after Nehemiah. So we're looking at a date of writing around 442 B.C. or 400 B.C. But this is definitely one of the last, if not the last, books of the Old Testament to be written. The book is only four chapters. So we're actually going to examine the whole book, all, all the verses, over this week and next week. We want to find out what was the last word that God sent to his prophet to give to Israel, and how is that word relevant for us today? Here is our outline for today's class. We're going to first examine the introduction to the book of Malachi. We'll then look at Malachi's rebuke to Israel's priesthood. We'll then consider out Malachi's more general rebukes to the people of Israel. And we'll finish by considering application of this first part of Malachi. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Yahweh God, you are worthy of all glory. And that's something that's easy to repeat, God. While at the same time, loving idols in our hearts. God, I pray that the this great word that you gave to the prophet Malachi would pierce our own hearts, that it would convict where necessary, and it would encourage, and that we would be giving pure worship before you, that we would be enjoying you today, not with any sort of secret sin in our hearts, but Lord, trusting you and believing that your way is good, and then waiting for your reward. I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain this word, and I pray that you bless our time together. Amen. Okay, so please open your Bibles to Malachi 1, first chapter of Malachi. So if you're using the Pew Bible, that's page 950. Malachi chapter 1, we're just going to read the first five verses as we look at the opening word of Malachi. So Malachi 1, verses 1 to 5, page 950 in the Pew Bible. How long as I read, please. The oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says Yahweh. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we've been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom Yahweh is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, Yahweh be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Okay, just a short little section, but let's observe. 
Notice the very first words of the prophecy of Malachi to Israel. Yahweh says, I have loved you. I have loved you. But immediately there's a questioning response from Israel. How have you loved us? God replies by pointing to the example of Jacob and Esau. Even though Esau was Jacob's brother and the firstborn of Isaac, God reminds Israel, I did not choose Esau, but I chose you. And remember God's declaration about these two men before their births, the declaration that God made to Rebekah in Genesis 25-23. God said, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Esau was that older son, and Jacob was the younger. Yeah, the prophecy was that Esau would serve his brother. Now, in Genesis 25, notice the terms love and hate were not used. But they are used here in Malachi. God says, I have loved Jacob. I loved him in the past. I'm still loving him. But I have hated Esau. And Israel would have seen this historically. The nation that came from Esau, the nation of Edom, never experienced the blessings that Israel did as God's chosen nation. The land of Edom to the southeast of Judah, the, the map here is a little bit misleading because this is post-exile Palestine, or post-return from exile. So Edom would have actually been a little bit further down here. You can see where my mouse is pointing. But the land of Edom to the southeast of Judah was mostly rocky and barren. It was not a fertile land like the land of Israel was. The people of Edom did not know or follow Yahweh, nor did they have his temple. Moreover, in the time of Israel's kings, Edom was often defeated by Judah and put into subjection. The kings of Judah forced Edom to give tribute and military support. Edom was never a great kingdom and seldom an independent kingdom. They were often in subjection to Judah. And when Israel and Judah were judged severely for their sin with Babylonian conquest and exile, Edom also experienced judgment. Edom, too, was conquered by Babylon and brought very low. Some surviving Edomites eventually moved from their original land to some of the territory vacated by the exiled Jews, which is why in the map you see that the Edomites, the territory of Edomia, is basically in the southern portion of Judah, or where Judah originally was. And here's the post-exile territory, small territory around Jerusalem. The Edomites, they moved into the land that was formerly inhabited by the Jews. And perhaps some of the Jews noticed this and they say, what's going on with Edomites? Didn't God promise that, that um, we would be a special people and that the, the descendants of Esau, the older, would serve the younger? And God tells the Jews, I have loved you and not Edom. Look at what I've done to Edom. And even now, as they attempt to rebuild, as he goes on in the latter part of this introduction to say, even now, as they attempt to rebuild, I will make their efforts useless. God also tells Israel, you will see what I will further do to Edom, and you will glorify me. You will see it, and you will glorify me. And that's a sure promise. We should note that Edom's behavior historically has deserved the hatred of God. 
The descendants of Edom were idolatrous like their father. The, when the people of Israel came up from Egypt to Canaan, the Edomites opposed them and would not let them pass through the land of Edom. Edom attacked and raided Israel various times throughout Israel's history. And when Judah fell to the Babylonians, Edom rejoiced over Judah's fall and helped Babylon capture many fleeing Judeans. Throughout the Old Testament, God has acknowledged Edom's continual wickedness and foretold judgment on the nation of Edom. So this is how God, through Malachi, starts this prophecy. Israel, I have loved you uniquely. And even as you see Edom, remember, I have loved you, not Edom. But that question from Israel, how have you loved us? Is that a genuine desire for clarification? Or is it something more sinister? We'll come back to that question. I think we'll get a better sense as we read through more of Malachi. Let's now go to the second section. Let's look at what God has to say towards the priests of Israel in Malachi's time. Now, this is going to be a longer section. We're going to read from Malachi 1, verse 6, to Malachi 2, verse 9. All right, so Malachi 1, 6 to Malachi 2, verse 9. What does God have to say to the priests? Starting in verse 6. Yahweh says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says Yahweh of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of Yahweh is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, or lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says Yahweh of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says Yahweh of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says Yahweh of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. But you are profaning it, and that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, My, how tiresome it is! And you disdainfully sniff at it, says Yahweh of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery, and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says Yahweh? But cursed be the swindler, who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am, am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says Yahweh of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. 
Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says Yahweh of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of the priest should preserve knowledge, and many should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of, of, the, of Yahweh of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says Yahweh of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Oh, wow. Let's observe this section. Now, notice we have many questions here, both from God to the priests and also from the priest to God. But God asks the question first. He says, if a father deserves honor and a master respects, where is my honor and my respect from you priests who despise my name? Now, that's quite a question and quite an indictment on the priests. <laughs> you mean the priests of Israel? Those who are responsible for mediating the relationship of Yahweh to the people and giving God the prescribed worship, these priests actually despise Yahweh? They hate and treat Yahweh as of little importance? We hear a question from the priests in response. How have we despised your name? And God tells them, you've, de you've presented defiled food on my altar. And priests ask further, how have we defiled you? How has the food been defiled? And God says to them, you say, you priests say that the table of Yahweh is to be despised. You treat my table as contemptuous and of little account. And we see a number of details about the priest's offerings following. God says, you present the blind, the lame, the sick, even stolen animals, even animals that were obtained by swindling as sacrifices to me. And God asks twice, is that not evil? What is the general requirement for sacrifices according to the law of Moses? Yeah, Rob. Yeah. I mean, there were different regulations depending on the sacrifice, but generally they were all to be unblemished, usually an unblemished male, but unblemished. There's no imperfection in it. There's nothing physically that you can point to and say there's an issue with this animal. That was necessary for the sacrifices. But the priests are not giving unblemished sacrifices here. And God even asks, if a human governor would be where would a human governor be pleased to receive any of these blemished animals from you? Of course, the expected answer is no. The governor's not gonna be like, oh, thank you for sending me this blind animal or offering this animal in my honor. In verse 9, God asks further, will you do all this and then entreat my favor and expect to be received kindly? What wish does God express in verse 10? What does God say he wish would happen? 
Yeah, he says, I just wish the whole temple worship would be canceled. I wish you'd shut the doors and prevent anybody else from coming in or doing any sacrifices. Just cancel all this useless worship. I wish that would happen, God says. And he says bluntly to them, I am not pleased with you, nor will I accept an offering from you. Now, that's a big deal. God says, I'm not going to accept an offering from you. And notice the word for at the beginning of verse 11. We always like to point out these transition words. The word for indicates that what follows is a reason for what was just said. And what is the supplied reason? Well, God says, for my name will be great among the nations in every place and pure offerings will be offered to me everywhere. Now, this would have been a surprising word to the Jews. Why would this promise be surprising? God says, in the future, my name will be great among the nations, and there will be offerings among the nations, pure offerings before me. Why is that surprising? Is that a hand? Yeah. Yeah, so that's part of it. First of all, the system of sacrifices as God ordained through Moses, it was to be offered by the Levitical priests and by the people of the Jews. But also the location, God says, you have to offer the sacrifices in a certain location that I choose. And that location was Jerusalem. And yet in this promise, it says among the nations, I'm going to be feared. And among those nations, I'm going to receive sacrifices. There will be sacrifices from those nations all throughout the world. There will be pure sacrifices to Yahweh. So this is a surprising promise. And it's also a great contrast to what is currently going on in Israel. And God returns in verses 12 to 13 to the priest's profanations. He reports another evil statement of the priest in verse 13. Whoops, forgot to move my slide. Let me just do that. In verse 13, he reports another evil statement of the priests who they say, when they say, my, how tiresome it all is. How tiring and burdensome is this sacrificing and worship for Yahweh. God pronounces a curse on those who promise perfect animals, but then give blemished animals instead. And then God gives another reason. For, he says, I am a great king. Or it could also be translated, I will be a great king. And my name is or my name will be feared among the nations. The verb is not supplied in the Hebrew. The, the word is or will be. So it has to be inferred from the context. It could be present tense. It could be future tense. God says, I am a great king, or I will be a great king, and my name is or will be feared among the nations. That's just the end of chapter one. He has more to say about the priests. God gives a warning to the priests in Malachi 2, 1 to 2. He says, you priests better take to heart what I'm saying and give me my due honor or I will curse you and your blessings. Now, what's this all about? I will curse your blessings. Well, remember that the priests, they often prayed prayers of blessing for the people and for themselves. They would give benedictions. They would give a prayer of blessing. But God says, I'm going to curse those prayers. When you bless, I'm going to make your blessing into a curse. This, by the way, is the opposite of what famous Old Testament incident Where did we see the opposite? Curses turned into blessings. 
if you remember when Israel was going into the promised land, we had Balak, the pagan king who wanted Israel to be cursed. He hired Balaam to do so. But every time Balaam spoke, he gave a blessing instead. But now we're seeing the reversal of that. God says, you wicked priests, I'm going to turn your blessings into curses. And God says this actually, this curse is already in effect because the priests are already not taking God's words to heart. He further promises to rebuke the offspring of the priests, the descendants of the priests. I'm going to bring them into shame and dishonor. And I'm going to spread the refuse from your feasts on your faces, you priests. And I'm going to cause you priests to be taken away with the refuse. Now, here is definitely a shocking image. Because the word refuse, it's translated in the NIV, the King James Version, and the ESV as dung. And the Hebrew word is the same one used in the Torah, Moses' law, to describe the part of the sacrificial animal that contained the animal's excrement and which had to be burned outside the camp. That's the same word for refuse here. And God tells the priests of Israel, I'm going to take the excrement of your sacrifices, even the sacrifices that you give me in my feasts, and I'm going to spread it on your faces. And I'm going to carry you away just like the excrement is carried away and burned. That's pretty shocking. And what's the expected result, God says, from all this? Verse 4, then you will know. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue. Now, Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. From Levi's line came Moses, Aaron, and all the priests. Levi never served as a priest. And uh, the passage talks about how, how Levi was a faithful priest. So can't understand this to be Levi himself. This is referring to Levi's faithful priestly descendants. And what behavior characterized these priests? Well, they revered Yahweh. They acted righteously. They gave God's true instruction to turn the people back from iniquity and to Yahweh. And as a result, see what these priests experienced? They experienced life and peace from Yahweh. They were blessed. They were blessed by God for fulfilling their calling as priests faithfully. But in contrast, God says to the priests in Malachi's day, you have turned aside from the righteous way. You don't keep it, and you've caused many to stumble by your twisted instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi. And then there's a so in verse 9. It's another transition word indicating a result or an effect of what was just said. And what is the result of the priest's behavior? God says, I have made you despised and abased before all the people, you who do not keep my ways and show partiality in your teaching. So, lots to observe here. Some serious indictments of Israel's priests. So let's turn to the interpretation step now. How should we characterize the attitude of Israel's priests toward God? Yeah, they don't fear him. They don't reverence him. They treat God of little account. They're careless. They are contemptuous. They are apathetic toward God. He's not that important. And why is this attitude monstrously inappropriate, according to the passage? What's well, one reason? Is that a hand in the back?
right. God emphasizes that he's worthy of glory. I'm a father, I'm a master, but I'm not getting the honor and reverence that I deserve. My name will be great among the nations, but you're not showing off my greatness. You're not treating me like I'm a great king, even though I am a great king. Yeah, that's one reason. What's another reason? Remember, how did Malachi begin? He says, I have loved you. I have loved you, Israel. But they're not remembering God's love. They're not appreciating. They're not giving thanks. They're not giving appropriate devotion based on God's love to Israel. Even though he uniquely loved them, eh, it's just God, just Yahweh. He's not important. Priest attitude is inappropriate because of God's love to Israel, because of the special covenant role that the priests have. I mean, that was a quite a privilege and a blessing to be called as God's priest, to be set apart as Levitical priests and to offer the sacrifices and to draw near to God on behalf of the people. But they treat it like it's nothing. They treat it like it's not important. In fact, it's burdensome to them. And they pay no attention to God's greatness, his majesty, or his due glory. And they act the way that they do. And you notice that God asks a lot of questions of the priests. A lot of the things he says are presented in the form of questions. What's the point of these questions? What's God trying to show? Is that a, is that a hand? No? Okay. We could maybe answer that a couple different ways, but the one one reason that uh, that he does so is to lead them to understand your behavior is not justified. It's unreasonable. It doesn't make sense. You do all these things. You treat my table as contemptuous, and then you expect the sacrifices to be um, accepted by me. You expect that. They, they're by asking that question. Then he's trying to lead them to understand that doesn't make sense. What were you going to say, Danny? Yeah. 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 I think that's another reason for these questions, and that's another thing that we see that they don't even realize their own sin. They don't even realize how guilty they are, and God has to ask them, "Have you thought about this?" Do you realize what you're doing? Do you think that this is going to be acceptable to me? These questions, these rhetorical questions, they have easy answers, but the answers are meant to convict. They're meant to point out sin, meant to show the seriousness of what they're doing for Yahweh as God's priests. Now, the priests respond to God's questions, sometimes with questions of their own. But we should not think the priests were literally saying these things to God. How ought we to understand the words of the priests that are reported here? It's not like Malachi sat between a discussion between God and the priest and he reported what the priest said. So where are these words of the priest coming from? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, this is in essence what they are saying. We can... These are the answers based on their actions and based on what's going on in their hearts. They may not literally say this to God, but this is what they're saying in their hearts. And it's proven by their actions. So it's not inappropriate for Malachi to report the answers of the priests in this way. 
Now, considering what we learn about the priest's actions and attitudes before God, uh, or maybe this is a different way to say what we said earlier, the priest's questions back to God, like, how have we despised your name? How have we defiled your altar? Or how have we defiled you? They show the priests have a very low view of God and of his proper worship. They don't even realize how guilty they are. It's not like God says, you've been despising my name. And they say, oh, you know what? You're right. No, they don't even acknowledge it. Even though they clearly have this attitude, they ask questions as if they don't even understand what's going on. What? Really? We've, we've done something you don't like? They don't realize how guilty they are because they have such a low view of God. God stresses to these priests that if they're obedient like the earlier priests were, they will experience God's blessing. But if they are not, these priests will be cursed and shamed to the uttermost. Now, what is this concept, blessings and curses, what does it sound like from earlier in the Old Testament? Yeah, uh, on the side. Right. The general principle that sin brings consequences and repentance brings blessing, where is that principle most clearly illustrated in the Bible or most early illustrated? Yeah, just go back to the law. This is one of the basic aspects of Israel's covenant. God says, I want to bless you. You must be obedient. But if you won't be obedient, I will curse you. This is the basic principle of the covenant given by God to Israel. And the principle also extends to the priests. If you priests will follow me, I will bless you. But if you will not, I will curse you. And God says the priests are already cursed because they're not repentant. Now, notice again the future promise given in Malachi 1.11. Now, what had the previous prophets, some of the ones that we've looked at in the last month or two, what did the previous prophets said regarding the Gentile nations in the future? What are the prophets declared about the Gentile nations? Well, one thing for sure is that some of them would be saved. There's, you know, go back to Isaiah and go back to um, some of the other prophets that talk about how there are nations called by God's name, and he's going to uh, bring them along with Israel to worship of him in Jerusalem and to true worship. But there's also prophecies of judgment, prophecy of judgment on the Gentiles as enemies of Israel, as those who would seek to harass shame or attack Israel, and God says, I'm going to judge them. So we should already be aware that this, there's context to this statement in Malachi about God being honored and given sacrifices among the nations. We've already seen that the prophets, they declare both that the nations of the world will be judged, but also that a remnant of the nations will be saved and be brought into worship of Yahweh with Israel. Now we might see this promise in Malachi um, 1.11 figuratively fulfilled by Gentile Christians in the present church age. You say, oh yeah, isn't that happening? Or are there pure sacrifices going to God throughout the world? But I would agree, I would agree with John MacArthur here in interpretation that this promise is actually part of the context of the other Old Testament promises regarding the Gentiles' role in the Messianic kingdom, in the millennial kingdom. 
There will be worldwide worship, but actually literal worship, even offerings taking place among the Gentile nations in the future. That's what Malachi is referring to here. Certainly there is something similar to that happening in the present church age, but I believe Malachi is actually talking about something special for the millennial kingdom. But notice again, this future pure worship of the Gentiles is set in contrast to the present defiled worship of the Jews. That's been a motif that we've seen throughout the prophets, even the Old Testament. You Jews are wicked and not giving me proper worship, but the Gentiles, certain Gentiles do, or certain Gentiles will. Of course, that's that's a great shame because of anyone, the Jews ought to be offering the proper worship. And it's surprising that the Gentiles would do so. Now, one of the evils that God condemns the priests for here is the failure to faithfully teach God's word. Does this remind us of any other section of scripture where the priests or the spiritual leaders of Israel do not faithfully teach God's word? And you may remember it's one of the things that God indicted through his prophets of Israel and Judah before the exile, where he talks about reasons why his judgment is coming. And one of the things he says often is, your priests and your prophets are corrupt. They don't declare my word, or when they prophesy, they declare their own word for gain. So we've already seen this problem in the Old Testament, but of course we can also go to the New Testament, because consider what Jesus' indictment of the Pharisees and the scribes in his own day. He says they teach as doctrine the traditions of men. They do not faithfully teach God's word. That's been a continual problem in Israel. And it's a problem here in Malachi. And it's going to continue to be a problem when Jesus comes, when the Messiah actually arrives. The spiritual leaders, the priests included, they don't know or love Yahweh and they don't faithfully teach his word. We've seen a number of things from this passage here on God's word of the priests. But if the priests, the spiritual leaders of Israel are so corrupt, what would we expect would be the result for the common people? Yeah, they're going to be led astray. Or where they're already going astray, they're not going to be brought back. We expect to see the corruption of the priests reflected in the common people. So let's see if that's the case. Let's look at the third section of Malachi now. This actually is going to be two different sections. We'll take them one at a time. First, let's look at Malachi 2, 10 to 17, and hear what God has to say to the people in general, people of Israel in general. So Malachi 2, 10 down to 17, starting in verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may Yahweh cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to Yahweh of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, 
For what reason? Because Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says Yahweh of hosts. So take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied Yahweh with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? All right, let's observe this section. Notice we have more questions to start. The speaker asks, don't we all have one father and one creator God? And notice there's a shift here from the, Oops, I guess I put this on my previous slide. So notice there's a shift here from the you priest to the we. Uh, I think I messed up my slides here. I hope you'll pardon that. But notice there's a shift here from the you priest to the we. And who is the, the we that God is speaking or that the speaker is speaking of here? Who's the we? Yeah, the people of Israel. And Malachi, as one of the Jews, he would include himself in that. So that's why he can say, we, do the do I and the Jews, don't we all have this one common condition? Don't we all have one father and one creator God? Expect an answer is, of course, yes, we do. And then there's a follow-up question. If so, why do we deal treacherously with one another and profane the covenant of our fathers? And what is this treachery and abomination that the people have committed against one another? Well, he tells us they've intermarried with foreigners. They've joined themselves to the daughter of a foreign god. Rather than loving their brethren, rather than loving their creator, he says the people have joined themselves to the daughter of a foreign god and profaned God's sanctuary. And then notice a curse, another curse pronounced in verse 12. He says, may Yahweh cut off from Israel everyone who does this, even those who still present their offerings to God. And remember that the phrase cut off, as used in the Old Testament, it indicates death. May the Lord put to death those who do this. And God brings up another issue. He says, you also weep and mourn over your sacrifices because you no longer see the Lord's favor or his answering is answering you. And you ask... For what reason? In other words, why aren't you regarding our sacrifices anymore, O oh God? Why don't you answer our prayers? Why don't you give us the things that we're asking for? And God's answer is, because I have witnessed your treachery towards the wives of your youth. Your wives were your companion by covenant, and you divorced them. Now, verses 15 and 16 are a little bit tricky. And if you were following a different translation as I read, you may have noticed it was quite different. Verse 15 can be translated, as it is in the New American Standard, as a qualification. No one who had a remnant of the Spirit sought a divorce, since that one was seeking a godly offspring. But the verse can also be translated in another way, as a further explanation of the evil of divorce. And this is the way the King James Version and ESV, ESV take the sense. 
verse 15 would say, did not God with a portion of the spirit make them one, that is make husband and wife one, since God was seeking a godly offspring? So you can see here the difference of the senses. Who's the one who has the remnant of the spirit and who is seeking the godly offspring? The translation could be that it's the, the righteous man, or it could be that it's God himself. Who's the one bringing them together with the spirit and who's seeking the godly offspring? Verse 16 also can be translated a couple of different ways. New American Standard and the King James Version have God saying, I hate divorce and those who cover themselves with wrong. But the ESV and the NIV, on the other hand, they have the verse saying, those who hate and divorce their wives cover themselves with violence. They're kind of the same issues in the previous verse. Who's the one doing the actions? Is it God saying this about the people or is it God saying, or I'm sorry, is God saying he hates divorce or is God saying the people who hate and divorce their wives, they do this thing. They cover themselves with violence. Either way, whichever sense we take these, these verses, I'm not going to try and wade through and figure out which is, or try and discuss which one is the, the proper interpretation here. Certainly we see emphasize how seriously God takes divorce. It's not like we're unsure what he's talking about here. God is emphasizing just how evil divorce is. And he counsels Israel to take heed. Take heed. You are acting treacherously when you do this. Don't act treacherously. Take heed. And finally, God tells the people that they have wearied him with their words. And people ask again, how have we wearied him? What did we say that offended you, O Yahweh? And God tells them, you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh. And he still delights in him. And you also say, where is the God of justice? Let's talk about interpretation again. What is the author's point in bringing up the Jews' common ancestry and heritage? Why ask those questions? Is that a hand? Noel? No? <laughs> okay. <laughs> thought it's our hand. Well, the thing that comes right after those questions is a word about betrayal, about treachery. So the author is stressing that there's something about your heritage that means that you shouldn't be treacherous to one another. You're all one family. You're all one people. You're brethren. You've all been given a special dignity and privileges, not just because God created you as a special creation, as man, as men and women, but also as this special possession, as the people of Israel. You ought not to be doing harm to one another. You ought not to betray one another. But then, surprisingly, he says the way that they're betraying them is by intermarriage. You're betraying your people by intermarriage with the daughters of a foreign god. Why would this be considered an act of treachery? Okay, uh, the, your words are a little bit quiet, Joe, so I, I couldn't quite hear the last part of what you said. Can you say that part again? 
Okay, I can still only partially hear what you're saying, but I think I heard part of it, and maybe if I rephrase it, um, I'll get along the lines of what you're saying. Certainly, we know that the they are corrupting themselves and their own families, these individuals who intermarry with idolaters, intermarry with the women who, who serve foreign gods, but that's not going to stay compartmentalized. It's not going to be, all right, there's just one idolatrous family in Israel, there's just these different idolatrous families, and they're just going to... Um, curse themselves. No, it has an effect on the other people. They bring their corruption into the rest of Israel. They have an influence on the other people, not just because of their actions, not just because their sin is going to have consequences naturally for what they do, but as different segments of Israel take part in this uh, in this sin, they bring God's judgment on the whole people. So by sinning, by the individual sinning in these intermarriages, they're actually harming the whole people of God. And they're bringing judgment on the people of God. And certainly you can see a parallel, I think, here between Israel and the church, where God says, don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? And that's one of the reasons why the church has to take sin seriously, and why the church practices church discipline as it does. Because there is a sense that unrepentant sin within God's people is a betrayal of God's people. Even if it's just on an individual basis, it has an effect on the whole group. So it was indeed a, a treachery, an act of treachery, even though they, they shouldn't have done this to their brethren. Now, another thing that he said that this intermarriage was is that it was a profanation. It was a profaning of God's sanctuary. How is it that pagan intermarriage would corrupt or profane God's temple? Yeah, Rob. Okay, that that could definitely be one of the ways where the evil worship, the idolatrous worship, gets mixed in with the worship of Yahweh, and even that worship is brought into the temple. That's possible. Certainly, it could also be that the people actually are bringing unholy family members into the temple complex. They have children, or if they have a spouse who doesn't actually follow Yahweh, and yet they bring him into the temple space, that's defiling. But even as you were saying, Rob, even if the people don't bring unclean people into the temple space, they do bring their sin. And even if they do everything right within the temple space, but they sin right outside the temple space, that's still corrupting. God can't have his holy temple in a land of unholiness. If the people are sinful, the temple's going to be corrupted. And God's a holy God. His dwelling place can't be in a land of corruption and in a land of sin. So their intermarriage is actually defiling God's dwelling place. Now, God clearly, uh, taking a different question here, God clearly condemns divorce in this passage. But if you remember, just recently we were talking about how God ordained, he called for divorce in Ezra and Nehemiah, particularly when it came to, um, or yeah, I'll just say that. So why is it that God called for divorce there, or seen to prescribe divorce there, but condemns divorce here.
What's the difference? Hit any. Right, yeah. It, certainly we know that the situation in Ezra and Nehemiah specifically dealt with people who had married foreigners. And God says, you are to separate from them. And it wasn't just that one time in Ezra, but we see in Nehemiah also, it says, what did they do when these different reforms are happening in Israel? Twice it says they separated themselves from foreigners. I think that phrase is another indication there were more divorces taking place. And I think you're right, Danny. It was the lesser of two evils there. It was what, um, even though God loves marriage and he hates divorce, he prescribed that Israel would not join themselves to idolaters through marriage. And if they had, that they would divorce them. But that's not the situation here in Malachi. There's no indication that people are divorcing because they're trying to follow Yahweh. They're trying not to intermarry with foreigners, as we saw even just earlier in this section. No, they are intermarrying with foreigners. So what kind of divorces are they having? Well, these are unjustified divorces. These are divorces of Jew with Jew. And God says, this is treacherous. You are going against the covenant that you made with the companion of your youth. And I hate that. You are covering yourself with violence. It's like you are... You're a murderer, and you've just got blood all over your clothes. That's what your divorce is like to me. Now, we, there are um, some variations in verses 15 and 16, but what is the connection between refusing divorce and seeking a godly offspring? Can you say that last phrase again? Yeah, I think you're right. I think this is something that we all appreciate, especially in our day with the prevalence of divorce, but divorce counteracts or works against the teaching of God's word. Uh, parents, both mother and father, are to be teaching the children, not only in what they say, but also in how they live. And when you divorce, not only do you remove one of those teachers and supply them with someone maybe who's not going to be committed to teaching, but you also, you set a terrible example. You, on the one hand, you say, we're supposed to be faithful to our covenants because God is a faithful God. We are to be holy because he is holy, and yet you're not living in a holy way. You're doing a great, great act of treachery. It's possible also that, and I think some commentators go along this set of lines, that the people were divorcing their Jewish wives in order to marry foreign women. Obviously, that's going to have a terrible effect on, on a godly seed. That's not going to result in the teaching and inculcation of godly principles. But even if they didn't go that far, even if that wasn't the reason for the divorce, clearly those who value marriage and that want to treat their spouses well I want to have godly children. They know the value of keeping their marriage healthy, keeping it together, honoring their spouses for the Lord's sake and for the sake of their children being blessed. It's just a truism. Families that have God-honoring marriages tend to raise better children. Broken marriages 
They result in great spiritual harm to the children. So whether it's God intending the godly seed here or whether it's the godly ones, certainly those things I think go together. If we want to be, or if a person wants to be a spiritual blessing to his children and have those children be spiritual blessings to himself and to others, then he must work hard for the health of his marriage. He must take heed that he does not betray the wife of his youth, not just through divorce, but also in other actions, not be treacherous towards her. Of course, that's true for wives for their husbands also. Now notice, all of this is taking place, this intermarriage and this divorcing, and yet the people are weeping and asking God, why don't you regard our sacrifices anymore? And so we see the same thing with the people as we see with the priests. They don't, they don't understand or they don't appreciate that their acts are so evil before God that God's going to be affected by them. They think so lowly of God's standards and of God's holiness that they don't take their sin seriously. They don't even notice it. They don't even appreciate it. Or if they know that they are sinning, they think that they can offer these sacrifices in the temple, and that's just going to make everything good. Think they can cover their sins with proper external worship. The people, like the priests, are shockingly ignorant of their own guilt. And furthermore, in, state, in verse 17, with these wearisome statements the people present before God. Well, actually, let me ask this. What, what aspect of God are the people blaspheming by their statements in verse 17? Yes. Mm. Yeah. So it's an assault on the goodness or the justice of God. He must be a God who's okay with this sin, because I think you're right, Steve, as they're pointing out, oh, we don't see any justice. So that must be a sign of God's character. Rather than realizing that God is being patient and gracious with them over their sin, they take his lack of judgment as a sign that he's not, he's not that serious about sin. He's not just. He's not good. Those who, those continue, people can continue to sin without fear. He's just a God who winks at sin. Of course, this is one of the reasons why we must never look to our circumstances to understand God's will. Say, well, things are going well. God must approve. No, that's not necessarily the case. You must pay attention to what God actually said in the Bible. Because by making the statements that they did, they were actually blaspheming the character of God. God's not a God of justice. Now, what's interesting is, and we don't have time to look at this today, but the statements or the verses that come right after this section, where they question whether God's a God of justice or not, the statements that come right after this section are all about the future judgment of God. Malachi 3, 1 to 6, it's all about the coming judgment and how God's going to purify and he's going to uh, judge evil. So much to the opposite of what they were actually saying about God, God says, you haven't seen my justice, but it's coming. I've been patient with you. I'm actually running a little bit low on time, so I'm just going to summarize the, the last section that we were going to 
kind of look at. We certainly see that the people's behavior is evil when it comes to their marriages. They intermarry with foreigners. They also pursue divorces and betrayal of their marriage covenants. But it's not just that. In Malachi 3, 7 to 15, we hear how the people are not bringing their tithes and offerings to God's temple. And remember, those are important because the tithes, it just means a tenth, but there were a series of tithes in Israel, series of giving regulations. So it was actually more like 25%, 30% of their goods. They were to bring them, give them to the Lord so that the temple servants and the or so that the work of the temple could go on and the Levites and the priests, they didn't have to work their own fields. And also the, the government in Israel could minister to the poor. But these people weren't bringing in their tithes and offerings. They weren't bringing in the full thing. And God says, you're robbing me. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. And God challenges them, if you would only trust me, test me by bringing in the full tithe and see how generous I can be to you. See me. See if I don't open the windows of heaven to you and just give you abundant blessing. But as it is, you won't trust me, and therefore I must curse you. I must curse you. I must make you not receive the benefit that you could have. Your, your land is not as productive as it could be. You can't be satisfied with what you have, and you're cursed. And the people, God reports the people in this last section saying again, oh, it's futile to serve God. You can get away with sin. You can just keep on doing what you want. It's actually in vain, or seeking God is a vain thing to do. But God emphasizes to them, no, actually, if you would only turn, you would see how profitable it is to serve God. I'm trying to show you for your own benefit that you need to return to me, but you won't believe me, and therefore you're cursed. God tells them to repent, and he gives them an example of how to repent in returning to giving the tithes and offerings that they were required to do, but they won't do it. And so God says, your judgment and shame is coming. You are cursed. But not all, not all of the Israelites. There were, there were some faithful ones among them. And then there's another section of Malachi, which we'll look at next week as well, where God makes a, a differentiation. He says, this is what's going to happen to those who are faithful. They're going to be blessed. They're going to be vindicated, even while the whole nation is not. Even while the people as a whole stubbornly refuse to follow God, the nation, I mean, the, the individuals who are faithful, they'll be blessed. So as a whole, just looking at the spiritual state of Israel in these verses, we see it's very much like some of the situations we saw in Ezra and Nehemiah. People are stubborn. They don't want to give up their sins. They don't want to trust the Lord. As a whole, they are not willing to follow Yahweh. They may be less obvious about their sin than they were before. They may not be sacrificing their children to Molech. They may not be bowing down to worship Baal. But the way they treat Yahweh and the way that they treat Yahweh's command shows that their hearts as a whole still have not been changed. They're not circumcised on the heart. They don't love God, even though he has loved them and been good to them uniquely. Now, there's more to say about Malachi, but we're going to leave that till next week. There's a word about what God's going to do in the future for the people of Israel. That involves both restoration, but also judgment. The day of the Lord. We'll talk about that next time.
hopefully you can see that what we're talking about today has obvious application for us because we are those who would call ourselves God's people, have been brought into God's people, and we live lives of worship, not only in what we do in church, but also in our obedience. But do we present impure worship to God? Because that won't be acceptable. God hates hypocrisy. God hates when people say, oh, God, please hear us. God, we're your people. God, please bless us. On the one hand, and on the other hand, they have known sin in their lives. They're not. They're living materially. They're not. They're not willing to give their goods for the um, for the service of God. They betray. They they deal evilly with their spouses. God says that's not going to be acceptable to me. So here are just some questions to to leave us with today. Questions for you to think about some application of this this sobering word from Malachi. Do you present impure worship to God? Do you go through the motions, even here in church today, knowing that your life does not line up with God's will, as he explains it in the Bible? Number two, do you believe that your good deeds and external acts of worship can cover up your contempt for God, your lack of love for him, your idolatry to something in this world? Number three, do you also think that you will get away with your sin? God doesn't see. God doesn't care. He just winks at sin. Do you also malign the justice of God? Have you forgotten, number four, God's unique love to you, the good that he's done you? And have you concluded, like the people of Israel did in their evil, that it's vain to serve God? And then number five, if you have repented, do you love Jesus Christ for taking away the curse of your sin, this curse that your sin deserves? and instead giving you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as the Apostle Paul explains in Ephesians. So these are some words for you to think about. Like I said, next week, we'll finish up with Malachi, and we'll finish with the Old Testament. If you have any questions or comments, please email them to me. Let me close in prayer. God, we thank you for this word. Lord, we do not want to give, we do not want to attempt to offer impure worship to you, to say we are your people, even while we don't love you, and don't submit to your commands. God, we know that we are weak. We know that we can do like Peter did, betray you, deny you, even when we say that we'll go with you even to death. But Lord, where we've done that, please restore us. We know what you said to Peter. You said, do you love me? And God, we we want to love you. So where our love has been lacking, I pray that you would change us. And Lord, where we have failed, restore us. But Lord, we do love you. Forgive us for our sins. Let us walk in purity so that we can be your light and so that we can see your name glorified indeed among the nations. Pray to bless the rest of the service today for Calvary and grow them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. See you next week.